My guest today is a burlesque dancer, circus and sideshow performer, stage manager, and so, so much more that's been professionally performing since 2008. You've seen them performing in places like Brandon's Saloon and the Bushwig Main Stage to the Metropolitan Opera House. Now you can see her on the big screen as part of Switch and Play in the new Switch and Play documentary. I'm happy to have with me today the incredible Zoe Zigfield. Hi. Growing up, what did you want to do when you got older? There were lots of things I wanted to do. I had my eye on world domination for mm-hmm. sure, but I also wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a ballerina. I didn't know that burlesque was a thing yet, of mm-hmm. course, but my earliest party trick was getting naked. Um, <laughs> like as soon as I had the fine motor skills to take my clothes off, that's what I was doing. And mm-hmm. my parents tell this story of a dinner party. I must have been two. I was wearing clothes diaper, whatever, you know, I was dinner party ready. I disappeared into my bedroom, came back stark naked, must have gotten a great reaction because 32 (laughs) years later, I'm still doing it. That's incredible. So on that note, what sort of performing did you do growing up and what drew you to it? I started taking ballet, seriously taking ballet when I was eight, and I did that for a very long time, but I also dabbled in other dance forms. I was in whatever, you know, theater productions there were at my school, but it was like a tiny private school, so everyone was in the productions, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't like we were auditioning for whatever. Mm -hmm. A little bit of gymnastics wasn't really for me. It doesn't really welcome my body type and I felt that very clearly. So I was born in New York City. We left for a bunch of years and then when we moved back it was around high school time and I went to a performing arts high school very briefly but it was a wild year of dancing every single day which was amazing. What sort of dance were you doing? Um, mostly ballet modern but again I've dabbled in flamenco and I've dabbled in belly dance and I've dabbled in African and I've taken some Irish step dancing and some salsa and like nothing that's mine to put on stage obviously but just in terms of appropriation Mm -hmm. but I think valuable you know just like it's valuable to learn other languages yeah of course you know it's nice to have a wider vocabulary than just ballet after high school you got your bachelor's in performance art So how has that proven helpful, if at all, (laughs) to the stuff that you're doing nowadays? I designed that major myself. It wasn't like a real thing you could major in. And basically, I said I was doing a a bachelor's in performance art. And what that really meant was that I was going to take whatever classes I wanted Mm -hmm. and I would find a way to justify it. And I did. I, I studied all sorts of weird stuff in college. And I think what that degree prepared me for more than anything else is in fact being able to make conscious choices about my art and explain to people what I'm doing because there is unfortunately because of the way the art market works it's really valuable to be able to talk about your work and sell yourself to people and explain things even if they really defy explanation or are better without explanation. From there, what was your first exposure to burlesque and then was it love at first sight? I actually knew about burlesque starting as a teenager in the city, so pre-college because I was living in Manhattan and then northern Brooklyn. I had access to pretty much everything very early and so I knew about burlesque pretty early on and I was interested in it, interested in retro and pinup aesthetics and interested in performative nudity, as I mentioned, 
but timid, too timid to try it then. I almost auditioned for a burlesque troupe when I was 18 and got too overwhelmed and walked out. And if I could turn back time, mm-hmm. I would have done that day very differently because there were actually many burlesque legends in the room at the time. Mm. And I just didn't know that. So I didn't fight through my fear, unfortunately. So it took me another many years to get back to it. And I was living in Santa Fe, post-degree, not a lot to do, sort of flailing on Craigslist, looking at art jobs. And there was a post for the local burlesque troupe holding auditions. And I was like, sure, why not? You know, what do I have to lose? Walked into this audition, fell in love with the women who were in the troupe and running the audition. And that was that. With doing burlesque often comes exposing a lot of your body, which it seems like you have some experience (laughs) doing beforehand. But when you were first starting actually performing in front of people, was that a hang up for you or was it not a concern? I get nervous every time I hit the stage. It's been 10 years. I still feel that way. It's not really about my body, though. It's more about being loved Mm -hmm. (laughs) and being entertaining and making magic for people and doing doing a good job meeting expectations that's the thing i get nervous about now early on there was some some question of what people's judgment would be about my body it had less to do with what people would think of my body and more to do with maybe the queerness of my body that mm-hmm. has been complicated When I first started, I was really interested in presenting as high femme and shaving my legs and shaving my armpits and shaving my bikini line and having a snatched waist and blah, 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 blah. And and I really had something to prove about like being a socially acceptable or even socially revered femme. And and that's that's the piece that I think it was like. Can I get away with this? Will I be able to fool people into thinking that I'm a beautiful, sexy, high femme goddess? And it turned out I was able to do that, and now I don't really have to do it anymore. Did that type of mentality change when you started doing it in New York again? Um, that type of mentality changed when I started working with Switch and Play, which wasn't immediately when I moved to New York. It probably took like a year and a half or so before I found them. They have really shown me that the world is my oyster in Mm. terms of what I want to look like and what kinds of presentations can be loved and adored and experienced as sexy. Can you actually tell me about how you first came to first hear about Switch and Play and then how you got involved? So I'd been back in New York for about a year and a half, something like that. I had been having a hard time finding gigs. I wasn't sure like what the technique was to get into the New York burlesque scene. And my parents own a brownstone and their tenants came over for dinner and we were all chatting and burlesque came up. And this woman who was a tenant of my parents said, oh, I used to do opera-lesque and my favorite place to perform was switch and play because they were so welcoming of every kind of work and the audience is unlike any audience in New York because they're less there to objectify artists and Mm. more there to celebrate and be excited about whatever kinds of weird stuff is being put on stage and I thought oh that 
that sounds appealing. I would love to be celebrated by an audience Mm -hmm. more than objectified by an audience. So I tracked them down and just like cold emailed them. (laughs) Did my first show with them. It was a while before I did another show with them. I would just like drop in from time to time because they'd have like this rotating list of guest artists. Mm -hmm. And then at some point they moved to Branded Saloon. It was a long, slow transition to becoming a member of Switch and Play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was for a while. It was I was just listed as a guest artist, even though I was doing almost every show. And then at some point, it was just like, okay, that let's just let's just call it what it is. Like I live here now. Let's mm-hmm. just make it official. From your perspective, how has the scene changed, if at all, since when you first started here in New York? I think. I think the shift towards more varied kinds of performance art, like having drag and burlesque and performance art strangeness in a single lineup has gotten much more popular. I don't want to say that that is because of Switch and Play, but I think Switch and Play did play a significant role in demonstrating that there is a market for those kinds of shows. Definitely. And there have been other really amazing producers who have also done that. I think I'm seeing more pointed productions that uplift marginalized communities mm-hmm. now than I was when I started 10 years ago, which is exciting because I think that there should be shows that cater to demographics who haven't had the opportunity, who still don't have the opportunity as much as like cis white men even in drag, that's yeah. a thing. It's exciting to see more spaces and more evenings that are dedicated to other kinds of performance or other kinds of performers who deserve the stage as much as anybody. On the topic of performance and all the spectrums of performance, you don't just do burlesque. <laughs> you, One of the other things you do, among many, is snake charming. Yes. So can you tell me how... One stumbles upon becoming a snake charmer. And how do you learn that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right. So stumbling is correct. Um, I did stumble upon becoming a snake charmer. I got my first pet snake when I was eight years old. It's a birthday present for my parents. It's what I asked for. It's what they got me. That's awesome. Bless them. I've loved snakes my entire life. They fascinate me. I, I just, I adore them. I care about them. And I have this giant snake tattoo on my body. It's enormous. It runs yes. from my shoulder to my ankle. It is enormous. Iconic, one I, might say. I, one might say <laughs> iconic. Thank you so much. So at some point, I guess about four years ago, there's a lot of burlesque that happens down at the Coney Island Sideshow. They have burlesque programming. It's called Burlesque at the Beach. It's mm-hmm. really amazing. It's a lot of really weird, varied performance that happens Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, all summer. Incredible program curated by the iconic Bambi the Mermaid. Thank Mm. you, Bambi. And I was involved in that as a burlesque performer and had lots of friends who were involved in that. And once you're part of the Coney family, you're sort of part of the Coney family. Um, Like, that's it. And so I knew the right person who happened to be working sort of on the back end of the organization. And he said, hey... Rumor has it they might be looking for another snake charmer. And I said, didn't realize that was my dream job. Didn't realize that was really a job that anyone could have ever. But yes, I'm I'm the person for that job. And I spent 
a long while making my presence known to the director of the organization, Dick Ziggin. And uh, when he was ready, he gave me an audition and that was that. Pardon me if this is a stupid question because I know little to nothing about snake charming. Do you supply your own snake? Do they supply the snake? Um, That's a fair question. So I do have a snake who lives with me. She's a 15-year-old boa constrictor. She's about nine feet long and she's happy to perform and I do take her to gigs from time to time. But Coney Island also has their own snakes. They have two very, very sweet snakes who I love working with and transporting a large animal from one place to another can be a real hassle. So it's better to work with the snakes that they have. Um, these are not just any old snakes, by the way. These are, you know, born in captivity, very domesticated, like snakes whose energy I know. Don't go buy a snake and put it on stage, please. Yes. It's a mistake. Don't do it. I mentioned it in the intro that you've performed at the Metropolitan Opera House doing Snake Charming. Yes. How did that come to be? And can you talk about what the experience is like? I'm particularly interested in between performing in such a space like that. (laughs) So that also happened sort of, you know, just by the grace of the universe. A person I know from Coney Island was working with the director of that particular opera um, on some other project. And so this director was looking for sideshow performers and asked this person who I know. And that person put me in touch and I auditioned and... They didn't, we didn't have the paperwork in place for me to actually bring a snake with me to the Met at the time. So I brought a video of myself performing with the snake and I did some like low level contortion tricks, medium level contortion tricks. I'm not going to sell myself short. I did some pretty challenging contortion tricks in the audition room and then pulled out a hammer and nail and did human blockhead for them so they could see that I have skills and can be entertaining and It was great. It was the best audition I've ever been on. I had so much fun. And then you're doing that again in the coming year, correct? Yes. We start rehearsals in December. The show opens February 15th. We run, it's like two shows a week through March 15th. It's amazing. And to answer your question, it's a very different experience performing in a 4,000 seat theater. But the energy is not so different than being in branded saloon Mm -hmm. it's electric so for in that instance is it coney island providing the snake or is the metropolitan opera providing the snake it is the metropolitan opera providing the snake in that instance okay we auditioned four snakes how does (laughs) how does one audition a snake um so the the animal handler brought in several snakes the I think the first two were too small. The third one was beautiful, but too big for my little arm span. And then the fourth one, Rocky Balboa, mm. perfect size. All wonderful temperaments. It was really just about what can I handle gracefully that will actually be seen out in the audience. Do different snakes have like different susceptibility to charming? Okay, so charming in this context is actually a misnomer. There is a real thing, snake charming, that happens in places like 
Turkey, for instance, where there's a snake in a basket and a snake charmer playing an instrument and mm -hmm. the snake follows the, I think, the vibration of the instrument. I actually don't know really how it works. I have theories, but I've never seen it in person. And that's a thing that happens. Snake charming in the context of American Sideshow really is... Okay, I'm giving away my secrets on a podcast, so this is the end of my career. <laughs> it's it's not really charming. It's snake it's snake dancing, it's snake presentation. And it's my job to work with the snake and know the snake well enough and understand the snake well enough that we can sort of have a shared experience on stage that is calm and beautiful and positive. But I'm not I'm not hypnotizing anybody. You know okay. what I mean? So one might say that the snake charming is the impact you have on the audience with the snake. One might say that, yes. <laughs> Another thing that you do yes. is uh, stage managing. Yes. So people at home that have gone to a nightgown show have seen you about. Yes. Would you say that being a performer impacts your approach to stage management? And if so, how? Yeah, so I'm I'm the assistant stage manager for Nightgowns. Johnny, of course, is up in the booth stage managing, and I am second in command. I don't have any formal training as a stage manager, but when you are in burlesque spaces, there's this job called the stage kitten. And basically, it's your job to clean up any clothes that a performer has taken off because that's part of burlesque and to set up any props that they'll need on stage before their act starts or clean up anything that they leave behind props wise or so it's it's stage maintenance um but it's very visible because most burlesque stages are like the back rooms of bars, yeah. you know, much like branded saloon mm -hmm. situations. And there isn't necessarily a curtain opening and closing. Yeah. So you have to look cute. You better look cute. And in the burlesque world, although I do take issue with this, in the burlesque world, the stage kitten is considered an entry-level position where producers, producers can see what you look like on stage and how you handle pressure and how you are in a dressing room and you know how cute you are in person and how audiences respond to you so so I did a lot of stage kittening and I love stage kittening and 10 years into my career I still enjoy stage kittening even though it's considered entry level because a stage kitten is actually on stage a lot mm -hmm. and and if you are not confident and competent you're going to ruin the pacing of a show. Yeah. Uh, so I take great pride in being able to manage a show uh, smoothly while looking Fabulous. Sexy. Fabulous. <laughs> so Sasha and Johnny know me from Switch and Play, and they've seen me kitten, and they're always, they always have an eye on their community. They're always looking to hire people uh, who they already know and trust and whose work they've seen. And they're always looking to elevate the folks around them. And they could have hired a professional stage manager, whatever, whatever. But they they know me and they've seen me work and they know that I'm competent and confident and can do the job and can turn a look. And so, you know, that was a very long answer to a, a pretty simple question. But, yeah, so my experience kittening has informed 
the work I do as a stage manager, which is that I'm asked to mm-hmm. stage manage and turn a look. Gotcha. Since you've been around the performance industry for quite a while, you've probably seen a good fair amount of performances yourself. So with that, I ask you, what's the one number that you've seen someone else do that you wish you had come up with yourself? Charlene. <laughs> Anything Charlene does. It's not about it's not about numbers. It's it's literally I watch Charlene and wish I could be Charlene. Charlene is who I aspire to be. And for the listeners at home, what is it about Charlene that draws you in? You find so captivating. God, she's just magnetic, unapologetic, electric, outrageous, unstoppable, and kind of like a live wire like you don't like anything could go wrong at any moment like Charlene is the kind of performer who who would fall off stage into an audience or break something or I I don't I don't know break her nose break someone else's nose like when you watch her it's so dynamic that it it feels like she's just barely in control of what's happening mm-hmm. in a good way in a way that's really exhilarating watching charlene makes me feel alive you've already done so much in your career do you have a proudest accomplishment so far um working at the met i'm very proud of that it's it's outrageous um i'm also secretly a huge opera buff and used to go to the Met a lot as a kid. So, like, it's a huge accomplishment. But also, Taylor Mack did um, 24-decade mm. uh, history of popular music. It was the Philadelphia production, and I was brought in to be a dandy minion for that. And there's a moment in the show where there's a giant, giant stripper pole. It's actually a fire pole, um, which is different than a stripper pole. Um, harder to climb. Um, and it goes... It's... It's sort of like jankily rigged to the balcony and it's a very far distance from the balcony. And there's a moment in the show where I got to climb that huge pole and sort of hoist myself over the edge of the balcony in tiny little underwear in the Kimball Center, which is just this beautiful, beautiful, like traditional theater space. So I'm really proud of that. That was amazing because I got to I, I used to be a stripper. I'm really proud of that as well. Mm-hmm. I've had a good run. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. And then, speaking of your good run, Switch and Play documentary is screened a few times at this point, yes. and it's garnered some critical praise and lots of positive word of mouth. Did you have any worries or concerns about the documentary while it was being filmed? Whether it was something like you thought, like, concerned about how you came across or that was afraid that people wouldn't get it or something? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's always that fear that, you know, you tell your story and then you hand it over to somebody else and you hope that they do it justice and get it right and don't make you look bad. But but the director, Cody Stickles, and the producer, Chelsea Moore, were very, very, very generous about showing us rough cuts and hearing our feedback, welcoming our input about it. So by the time the documentary was ready to you know be screened 
uh, I felt really confident that we, that it was an honest representation of who we are and what we do and that it was shining a really beautiful light on the work we were doing, are doing. And based on the reviews, I think there are some people who don't get it. I think there's some <laughs> straight people who are a, a bit perplexed or feel a review came out um, a couple days ago about, uh, and the reviewer talks about uh, feeling like they might be uncomfortable in the space for fear of using the wrong terminology and not being, you know, sort of up to date on how we talk about ourselves. And that's fine. It, if if that person felt uncomfortable about it, then there was a reason for that person to feel uncomfortable about it. But yeah. um, not necessarily your fault for that. <laughs> not our fault. Doesn't bother me. You know, we're all on different stages of learning curve about talking about queerness. Yeah. And and so that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so finally, what's next on the horizon for you? Uh are there any new things that you like to try or are there any things that you haven't done in a while that you want to return to? So I've started taking flexibility classes again. I was There were a couple of years where I was uh, doing pretty serious contortion training. Um, and so I've just started going back to class for that, which is exciting and does inform the kind of movement I put on stage. So stay tuned for some pretty extreme backbends. And then the production at the Mets starts up again in December. So can't wait to do that. But I also would love to do more stage managing. I love working behind the scenes. Doing nightgowns has been deeply rewarding. And so I I do have my eye on more behind the scenes stuff in the future, I think. Awesome. And I look forward to seeing you behind the stage, but not really behind the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank uh, you. So with that, where can the people find you, follow you, and consume your media? Yeah, Instagram is the ble- best place to consume my media right now. I'm not proud of it, but that's that's where I am. So that's Zoe Zigfield, Z-O-E-Z-I-E-G-F-E-L-D. I'm on, I'm on it, but I'm not, I'm not really on it. So don't bother with that. But the most... I mean, you can count on finding me at Branded Saloon every second and fourth Saturday of the month uh, with Switch and Play. And then if you see an announcement for nightgowns in New York City, there's a good chance I'll be there too. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.